here we are at the beginning of uh, the second science fiction club meeting of 2019, February the 14th. And uh, I'll have to edit all that stuff out at the beginning. That's why I make a little pause there. Um, makes it easier to find. And so uh, we will go around and see what people want to talk about this month, whatever it was they read this month or last year or 20 years ago or whatever. <laughs> so, okay, who, who wants to go first? Well, I'll start so I don't forget what I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> I read The Engines of God by Jack McDevitt. Well, he's a big hit on this club. He was, well, this is the third appearance he's made in yeah. the last three months. Well, I always, I'm, I'm always worried that I'll cover something that somebody covered in a meeting I missed. Oh, is that Marshall? Yes, it is. Okay, Marshall, let me see if I can rename you here. I have not... Not necessary. Are you sure? Okay. Yeah. We'll just call you 801 tonight. <laughs> we'll just call him 801. <laughs> wasn't there a, wasn't there a uh, science fiction book? Uh, was it? Uh, it was very old, and everybody had numbers. It even had a number in the title or something. But I, Ralph, one to foresee for one plus by Hugo yes. Gernsback. That was you know, something like right. Very first officially recognized science fiction novel. Wow. Yep, that was it. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> well, anyway. Um, this is uh, The Engines of God by Jack McDevitt, and it attracted my attention because it dealt with archaeology, which I always find interesting when space archaeologists go to old planets. And there are indeed some archaeologists on a planet, and they found a lot of really mysterious things, um, including people they call the monument makers, and they have seen monuments on other planets with plaques similarly inscribed, and they have a linguist who's trying to decipher these things. They also found a moon of this planet, and on the moon there's a city that was built that's really totally deserted, doesn't look like anyone's ever lived there. All the buildings are totally square and designed very well. However, the people on the planet, and it's called something like Caragua or something, I can't don't remember the pronunciation, they ha did not have the technology for space travel. So no one knows how this city was designed on this world. And to complicate things, the people on Earth, which is dying, which is a frequent trope in sci-fi, want to terraform this planet Caragua, and they want to do it immediately. They want these archaeologists out of there. They're going to nuke the poles and have the ice um, melt you know, all over the planet, flood everything, earthquake everything, and then they're going to terraform it for inhabitation. So, of course, um, you know, adventures ensue. You know, they're getting off at the last minute. Will they make it? Will they go ahead and nuke it with them still there? Will they be able to save all the artifacts they want? That sort of thing. Then the plot jumps to a whole nother thing where these people are now off this planet and there's a possibly a communication in another area of space. So these same people go off to investigate that. And again, adventure ensues. <laughs> and um, there's something they call the discontinuation that they're trying to resolve. And what that is is sort of a point in time where the so-called engines of God have come and destroyed a civilization. And on Earth, they think that that might be Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And on these other planets, it's other different things. There's a couple other planets involved that are inhabited. And I, I won't give you any more details than that. I, I kind of liked the book. I liked the archaeology parts. And it's probably 20, it's probably 75% me and 25% the author. But I found it pretty confusing to follow a lot of the plot lines. I almost wondered if there was a, this was a sequel to something and I had missed some stuff because they had a lot, it was pretty complex stuff, and they also threw in a lot of unnecessary things. One time they're on the um, ship and they're watching a play, and he, he must spend 20 minutes describing this play, which was, maybe oh. it was supposed to be symbolic, but if it mm. was, I didn't get it. So all in all, I'd give this a, an okay. I mean, the archaeology was interesting, the science was interesting, the trying to tie this stuff together was interesting, they didn't really accomplish it, though. <laughs> so at the end, I kind of felt let down. I would have liked a more tying up of more loose ends. So that's it. All right. Okay, I guess I'll go next. All righty. Okay, now, <laughs> I'm getting so old that I can't even remember the name of the book. I have it here in the victory. It's called Defy the Stars. Let me see who wrote it here. By Claudia Gray. I, and let me give you the the uh, the DB number in case you need it. Okay, and this is a very interesting book. It has it takes place in the future uh, when Earth uh, has colonized a number of other planets. Uh, I think it's sort of like a, a sequence of about eight or nine planets with different names, and and they're scattered across the universe, and you get there through wormholes. And there is a planet called Genesis, which apparently um, is the, the main population are religious people, and they have rejected in most respects technology, a technology and try to le live a simple life. And Earth is imposing its will on this planet, and so there's a war. Um, and uh, the people of Genesis, are, the main character from Genesis is a, a young girl named Naomi. And they're, they're fighting the forces of Earth who are composed of robots called Mechs. And it starts out, and what they're trying to do, the people from Genesis, they do something called the Masada Run to try to close the wormhole so that the, the robots from Earth can't get through and continue to attack them. So it starts out with his, with his uh, dog fight or jet fight or dog fight with with a, a group of people from Genesis fighting against these swarms of mechs who are coming through the wormhole. And the, the character um, somehow ex, is, gets, finds this abandoned ship. She was going, I think her friend was surrounded by ships and was trying to save her. And, they, and, and she boards this, this abandoned ship, apparently that was from Earth. And there's a robot there, a mech named Alex, who had been in, had been abandoned by his creator in the ship, and he was there for like 50-some years, and he was programmed to kill any, any living human being. So when, he, so when he comes across Naomi, they have a fight, and somehow she was able to prevent him from killing her. And then the, the, the story evolves uh, describing the relationship between Naomi and Alex, and at first how he gradually begins to, to overcome his programming and find that he has human elements. His creator has created him as a unique mech, 
and apparently did not realize that he also created the capacity for him to actually be, have a soul and and, and and be able to override some of his programming. And uh, <clears throat> at the end, they um, he, Amy somehow was able to obtain or, or achieve the fact that he now cons considers she to be his master and his his, um, his obligation to defend her against everything. And so they, they go through adventures trying to go to different planets. They need to try to find <clears throat> some sort of element to, to, to destroy the wormhole. And they meet up with other people, eventually go to Earth. And Alex's creator, who's an, a, a, an eccentric English person, whose name I forget, um, turns out that he had created Alex as such a perfect being in order for him to project his consciousness into Alex's body and live on beyond it because he's an old man now becoming very decrepit. So at the end, Alex has to struggle between the, the, the orders from his creator to kill Naomi and his loyalty and, 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 and I guess awakened love that he has for Amy. And he does win out. And in the end, they are able to close the, the wormhole, I believe. And then Alex goes on to, you know, to explore his new self and explore other worlds and to find himself. Um, the book, I, the, the book is read by two different persons: one, a, a female who reads part of Amy and a male who reads the part of Alex. And I found it to be a rather interesting book. What was the name of that again? It's called. Defy the Stars. Okay. Defy the Stars. Hello, everybody. And his home. Well, I, I came in at 9 o'clock, and I waited till 9.05. <laughs> Nobody was yeah. here. Everybody seemed yeah. to have trouble. A lot of people seemed to have trouble getting in. I, I had some trouble myself. I'm not sure if Zoom had a hiccup or, or what. but. Well, uh, it said something about wait for the host. Yeah. So I waited and waited, and... and uh, I don't think we had troubles. That the, for some reason, the fact that you weren't able to get in, I had right. some trouble getting in. Right. It kept us from getting in. It kept you from getting in. Oh, okay. right. And right. Alan wasn't here this week, so right. actually right. we we're both hosts. So if he had been here, you guys would have gotten in. Oh well, so, you know that's okay. Lateness. That's okay. We're all here now. My computer yeah, difficulty. We're, we're here now. Yes, we uh, are. Science fiction. Yeah, defy the stars. <laughs> Who was the author on that again? Um, gee, what did she say that? <laughs> that's I, okay. I just—it's a good title. Yeah, and I thought the book is interesting, I and mean, the concept of the, of the the robot, you know, and how the his, his evolution, discovering himself and overcoming his programming, and actually find that he really has an actual soul. It's it's an interesting concept. That is interesting. Who's next? Uh, why doesn't one of the new people, uh, David or Lindsay? What do you think? Um, okay, okay, I'll go next. Okay. Um, I read 48 Hours by um, William Forstjen, and he's the author also of One Second After, One Year After, and The Final Day. Uh, what I liked about the 48 Hours is, yes, it was... Uh, 
the earth was, and you know, there was a major catastrophe, but it was about the sun was dying, and there had been a series of solar flares leading up to, um, they were predicting a, a complete, um, the, the, the gravitation of the sun was, was basically dissolving and was not going to be able to contain these solar flares. And every time there was a, you know, another solar flare, it weakened the worth of the Earth's protective um, atmosphere as well. So they predicted, um, you know, they brought this big scientist in, and, and, and they predicted there was about 48 hours left before this next major event. And the big challenge of the book was um, getting as many people into shelters as possible. They figured that the only way to survive this radiation release was going to be to be, to be deep below the ground. So it took place mainly in Washington, D.C., and then out in Missouri. Now, sadly, <laughs> the shelter in the warehouse in, in uh, Missouri was um, basically craft Foods. <laughs> so, these people were going to survive on craft Foods. Oh. Uh, yeah, so um, the people in oh, Missouri... Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, the, the people in um, Missouri... The military, of course, had decided, well, they were going to, of course, be the ones in the shelter. Well, the, the, the people in the area, the citizens, the civilians in the area decided that no, in fact, um, there were two people, and I'm, I'm sorry, I think Dara, um, Dara was, uh, Darla was one of the main characters. She was ex-military, and so she was a tough lady, but she decided, no, if the, if the world was really going to have a chance at a future, it should be the children to go into the shelter and that adults, um, children uh, older than three and like between three and 18 could go into the shelter. Um, so in that short time, they're also trying to round up essential adults that would be needed to help grow the children up. Good teachers, doctors, uh, nurses, um, you know, people that are going to be able to successfully raise and meet these kids' needs. And, of course, there's big clashes um, between the military and the civilians, and it, it describes, you know, all the chaos that you normally see in these kinds of novels with people looting and people going crazy and, you know. But what I liked about this is at the end, the civilians actually won, um, and it was the children that went into the shelter with the essential adults, um, and that's where I'll leave it. Okay, so that's the sequel of after one. That's a sequel. Of well, no, no, it's not a sequel. It's not? It's, it's it's the same author as uh -huh. the the one second after <laughs> one year after. Um, no, it's uh, Forstchen. Um, oh, okay. It's it's called Forty Eight Hours. Now, unfortunately, it's not available on Bard yet. It's it's an Audible. Did the uh, people in D.C. did they decide to let the politicians go into their shelter or? Um, theirs was a little bit, uh, um, it was the politicians because they didn't have that same civilian group in D.C. Mm. That, that were fighting about it. But, well, then yeah. we're still doomed, huh? <laughs> well, actually, the, the president in this one was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was pretty humane, you know, so. It was, it was okay. I liked it. Well, what I really liked it is, is because of the, the cause of the, um, 
you know, it was not a political, it was not because of an EMP attack or, you mm-hmm. know, an attack from a foreign government. So it, it didn't get political in that respect. It didn't get us against them. It, mm-hmm. It's really about what we're doing to each other, you know, what we do to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's interesting. Yeah. <coughs> my name is David Green. This is my first time in here. I've heard uh, about it. Oh, great! Uh, quite a few times, and I've uh, I retired a year ago, so I I'm doing a bit more reading now than a bit more. Uh, variety reading and uh, I guess this is all science fiction that you're discussing here in this room is it right mm-hmm. yeah well I'm uh, I guess I'm not into science fiction too much the closest thing that I would have read recently is uh, the clan of the cave bear uh, or the earth children series about the ice age uh, but I've uh, you know, I've never read much science fiction. So. That sounds familiar, though. So. The cave there. Yeah, that was a bestseller. It is. Oh. It that was is a big science fiction. It's close to science. Yeah, it's close. Yeah, it's science if, fiction. If you consider yeah. the science to be paleoanthropology. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you want to talk about it's that a, one? It's a very it, good series. Yeah, yeah it takes yeah. place some um, thirty to thirty-five thousand years ago, or yeah. At least 35,000 years ago, and of course there has to be a lot of speculation about the um, cultures that existed at the time. Um, We really don't know anything about them now, so um, I'm not sure it would be called historical fiction, because it doesn't take place in historical time, and you don't really know the historical background of it. Could it be called prehistorical fiction? Maybe. <laughs> I think it's close to science fiction. Yeah. yeah. You want to yeah. talk about it for a minute, Dave? Did you well, like I, it, Dave? Uh, I just, uh, how I. Did we lose you? Did we lose him? I don't know. Sorry. I don't know. Might be number. It might be number three. Oh, there you uh, are. Just the uh, the uh, the whole the whole culture, uh, different culture. Like this this young girl is born and and left for dead, and then she's uh, she's rescued, uh, you know, by the uh, by the by the uh, cave people. Mm-hmm. And raised in their culture, and she looks different, and and you know the the genetics that are in her are so much different than the the cave people. But how she learns their ways, and and uh, yeah, it's it's I don't know. I guess there is some science fiction, and some history, and some romance. And did you enjoy it? Some romance. I did. I uh, <clears throat> my wife is quite a reader, but. Uh, if I pick up a book, if it doesn't, if it doesn't catch me in the first half hour, then uh, it's gone. Like, I won't bother mm-hmm. with it. Like there's, there's enough other things in life I have to do, and if it doesn't interest me, or if I'm not writing an exam on it, then I won't bother with it. But yeah, it, it did catch me, and like I say, I have two more to read. Another Indian wrestling one I read, which 
Uh, I guess it's not I, science I, I, fiction. I is uh, years ago, I becoming. I mean, the series was really um, What was it called? Becoming. Uh, becoming. It was by um, by uh, your previous presidents. Oh, Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama. Oh, yeah. oh, that was a wonderful book. It was yeah. not science fiction, but it was. No. A wonderful <laughs> book. What was that, da uh, David? Uh, Martin? What was yeah, that? I, yeah, I had read the book. I had read the, that series. You know the. Can of the Clay, Can of the Clay Bear, and then I think uh -huh. Valley of Wild Horses, I think. Really yes. Yeah, so. You know, I mm -hmm. want to ask a question. Would one consider the series of that Left Behind series as anything like science fiction? I'd call that fantasy. Yeah, I guess it depends on... I wouldn't call it science fiction, mm -hmm. really. Uh, I mean, because you've got out-and-out -out supernatural events going on in there. The That's whole... True. The right. whole disappearance of everybody you know on the plane i read some of those actually many years ago to see you know just to kind of see what all the fuss was about and i read i think a few of them and no i don't think you could call it science fiction at all uh, i'd call it religious fantasy yeah yeah the whole, the the whole point of the most push, push religion yeah they were they were very uh um yeah that would be a but, good May I make another comment on Climb of the Cave Bear? Yeah. Um, an interesting thing. They made a movie out of that book. And in the movie, it, and if you ask me, this was kind of like a subtle racism. Ayla, the main character who was homo sapiens, was depicted as blonde hair and blue eyed. Mm. In fact, all of the homo sapiens were depicted as blonde hair, blue eyed, while the Neanderthals didn't look a thing like what we know Neanderthals would have had to have looked like. They looked kind of like Italians, a uh, bit swarthy skin <laughs> with dark hair. <laughs> uh -huh. In any case, a very interesting thing that um, these paleoanthropologists are just discovering lately they found a skeleton. In right outside of the city of Cheddar, England. And in fact, they did DNA, they were able to recover some DNA from it. And they tried to compare it to people who had, whose families had lived in the area of Cheddar for very, very long times. And they found the modern day closest relative to whoever that skeleton was from about 10,000 years ago. Turns oh. out that he was a history teacher. But huh. even more recent, they have done more analysis on that DNA and found out that he has the genes for, well, at 10,000 years ago, this guy would have just about had to have had black skin and dark curly hair. Oh. And what they are, and, but his closest living relatives is a white guy now. What they are thinking is that the so-called white race is evolutionary, evolutionarily a very, very recent thing. If you could go back just ten thousand years and find out that homos, that the homos, Homo sapiens of Europe were then black, and not all that far removed from having immigrated there from Africa. So that kind of really 
blows the imagery of Clan of the Cave Bear all to hell. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was extremely interesting. Well, did they describe her in the book as being blonde and blue-eyed, or was that? Just a I, I yeah, I don't recall, but I. Yeah, that that, that image was portrayed. Oh. Well, see, I think I think that she chose to describe her as blonde-haired and blue-eyed because this is supposedly taking place in Western Europe, and the the journey that. Um, you know, she and, and John Delar go through to get back to wherever it was that she started out is supposed to be going across Europe. And, you know, the, yeah. um, I guess she figures that uh, Europeans are blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Not all of them are, but, you know. Yeah. Except, um, that, except well, according to these recent discoveries, very recent discoveries, at that time, 30,000 years ago, there may not have been any such thing as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed person. Yeah. Cool. Well, Anne, since you, do you want to go next, or Marshall, or? Uh, well, I could go next if you okay. want me to. Yeah, it's up to you. Um, well, as I, as I know I've told you guys, I've been rereading old favorites, and... Um, I read a couple, uh, and the first thing I read was the Beastmaster series by Andre Norton. Now, of course, um, I know everybody's read it, and I've read it too, and I just was in the mood for rereading, and so I reread it, and it's a series about uh, people who have a special affinity with animals and they were used as scouts and so forth in the uh, the recent wars and and um, uh, it's all about um, this Navajo who is a beast master and he has these uh, beasts that are his companions um, animals that are his companions, and there's a lot of talk about um, uh, mental communication and all that kind of stuff. And um, it it talks about how um, he interacts with you know the people that he meets, and one of the things that he is supposedly uh, on a quest to do is kill this one guy because he thought he had insulted his uh, his mother or his aunt or whatever the heck it was and turns out that it hadn't happened the way that he'd been told it had at all and uh, he discovers that he actually has a family because in these books Earth has been destroyed and so you know, he's planetless and family without family, and he all of a sudden discovers that he has a family. And the subsequent books are all about, you know, his relationship with the family and the various quests that they go on. And it's quite interesting. I, I really, I enjoyed reading them. 
or I should say rereading them. Yeah. Um, and the other book that I've recently reread is an old, old, old favorite of mine, um, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle. And I just decided to reread it for heck. And um, as you all know, you've probably all read it. Uh, it is a story of, of four kids who go off on a, on a quest. Well, three kids, actually. Because um, the twins don't go. The middle kids in the family don't go. But the oldest and the youngest go, and their friend Calvin goes, too. And they go on a quest to find the missing father. And they find the missing father and, you know, what happens after that. And um, it's not very long, but it was a Newbery Award winner in, in uh, 1963. And uh, I've had a good time rereading stuff. Wasn't that a movie just recently? I was just going to yeah, ask. Just if last it, year. Yeah, just last year. Yeah, was it audio described, and have you seen it, Anne? No, I haven't. I don't know if it's audio described. It seems like more and more of them are now. If you go to the theater, by the time they get the cable, they'll take the audio description away. I don't like that, but, you know, some of them make it there with cable. Netflix is pretty good about having audio described stuff, but, yeah, I don't know why they lose that when they go to cable. Oh, that is bad. Yeah. So okay. that's what well, I've been reading. Cool. So that one's science fiction? Which? A Wrinkle in Time? Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. yes it's science fiction. Oh, that sounds interesting, though. It is interesting. It's a very good book. Yeah. It's a YA book, but it's very good. Yeah, yeah adults can, the really, the best YA books adults can read, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, best. absolutely. I've read a lot of them. Yeah. The best ones. Not all of them, but well, like the Lloyd yeah. Alexander books. <laughs> They, well, one of them won a Newberry, too. And adults can definitely read those. I reread them, well, about 10 years ago or so. Um, well, about 12 years ago, because um, we did them for Bookshare. And uh, so, um, yeah, they're great books, and one of them won a Newberry. And those are for, like, grades. I don't know what NLS describes them as, what, grades 6 through 9 or something. But any adult yeah, can yeah. read those books and get a lot out of them. I have found that for the most part, not always, but for the most part, the main difference between a YA book and an adult book is that in the YA book, the characters are teenagers. Yep. Yes. Yeah, they usually are. They're young. So that, that makes it very easy for adults to read just fine. <laughs> yep. yep. Well, um, Marshall, what do you think? Did you read anything good this month or not? Do you? I know you have trouble. Well, I don't know how good it was. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I read a book called The Buntline Special. Uh, it's by Mike Resnick. Mm. Um, okay, the full title is The Buntline Special, A Weird West Tale by Michael Resnick. Mm. It's it blurs the line. In fact, it almost erases the line between fantasy and science fiction. Sometimes that happens. 
It takes place in an alternate history uh, around the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral, and it takes place in, let's see, where was that? In Where was the, was Arizona. that in Tucson? Yeah. Tombstone. Tombstone, Arizona. Uh, the Earps uh, are there, at least three of the four. Doc Holliday is there. Um, the American continent is divided at the Mississippi. The white people have everything east of the Mississippi. The Indians have everything else with a few places like Tucson. Um, there's the science fiction is they have some technologies that I don't think they had back then, like electric lights, uh, self-propelled electric vehicles. <clears throat> the magic is that, th or the fantasy part is that there are uh, zombies and magic, which the Indians have, the whites don't. Um, and it goes into a lot of detail about the events leading up to the gunfight at the OK Corral in this uh, mythical universe. Mm. Yeah, I, that's about how I started feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because like it just, sounds you know, like I, once I got started, I couldn't put it down, but it wasn't that it fascinated me so much. Um, but it's, you know, I, I've, I don't know. I have found that what little exposure I've had to Mike Resnick, he just hasn't grabbed me. And I think he was, wasn't he the guy that was on the mystery science fiction theater 3000 or something? No, that was Mike Nelson. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> Because I did, yeah. I liked him even less. Um, Mike Nelson. Yes. Oh. Well, I didn't like the. Sh you know, I grew up with those movies. I didn't like them. The robots interrupting the series. You know, the movies uh -huh. with their commentary. Oh, I. But I just. Yeah. I there just never did. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just never got into them. If I want to watch a movie. Even if it's a bad science fiction movie, I don't need commentary from people or non-people. <laughs> um, spoiling the thing. No Greek choruses, huh? Oh, I no. enjoy, I enjoyed those. Mo I enjoy them. I have I have uh, we ha I have some of them here on DVD. I enjoy them every so often. Um, well, did the fight at the OK Corral continue as historical? <laughs> Uh, yes, it did. Uh, I don't know very much about the fight, the actual fight. I do know that it was, um, well, I think I know that it was a power struggle between the Earps and the Clanton gang. And that was here, too. Um, but... The, 
It's an okay book, but I don't know how much I'd recommend it. My favorite, my favorite version of the OK Corral fight was when Kirk and Spock and <laughs> oh yeah, uh, that was Scotty a great thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, it's interesting that they would choose to have Native Americans inhabit the West, except for this town where they put white people in. Oh, you know that reminds me. I do have one comment about Andre Norton's book. She has this character in um you know in her in her uh Beastmaster series called Hostine Storm. Now she says in her book that Hostine is his first name. Hostine, at least as far as I can figure from reading all these Tony Hillerman books and other books too regarding Navajos, Hostine is a um an honorific. It's it's like a Mister or a mm. Mrs. A, you know a Mister or a Sir or a um, you know yeah. whatever. It's not a name. It's a as I say, it's an honorific. Yeah. Um, I wish you'd done her research a little bit better, but you know what can I say? Yeah. Well. I guess I am last. I think everyone else is done. Oh, I think Roger still needs oh, Roger, to. Roger, no. Roger was first last time. Oh. So, Roger, you are, if you want to go next, I'll go last again. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go next. Uh, thing is, I was avoiding just jumping in this time because I wasn't really pleased with the book that I picked out. I, well, actually, I was pleased with it. I enjoyed it. I just, it wasn't what I would have wanted to talk about here. The reason is I try to pick out a book that I think the rest of you are unlikely to have read and that people who download the recording of this um, podcast are unlikely to have read. But this time, I almost forgot about the meeting entirely. And kind of at the last minute, I remembered it and I just quickly went to my Goodreads science fiction shelf and started tapping through the selections to find one that I could remember well enough to talk about. <laughs> and it turned out to be a bestseller. Uh -huh. What I brought this time was uh, Fear Nothing by Dean R. Kuntz. <clears throat> uh -huh. uh -huh. it, it is a... a average length of book, but it takes place in a very short period of time, like um, a single night and, well, within 24 hours. It seems that the main character is afflicted with um, xerodermopigmentosa, which is a disease that makes him extremely light sensitive. He cannot go out into the sun. He can't even go into a well-lighted room without risking skin cancer. Oh, he has spent his entire life in the dark and uh, he can only go out at night. And by the way, this is a real disease, by the way. It's oh, yeah. rare. It's rare, yeah. but some people do have it. Yeah. And the book opens with him visiting his terminally ill father in the hospital. And he has to come in uh, during the daytime, but he is completely covered from head to 
toe, wearing a big hat, a mask, and all of that stuff. And as he enters the hospital, as he walks down the hallways, they douse the lights before he gets there. And then he goes into his father's darkened um, hospital room where, well, the father is about to die. And the um, name of the book comes from the fact that the father's last words were to tell him to fear nothing. But the father dies, and now it becomes nighttime. And he, as they remove the body, he's about to leave the hospital, but he decides he wants to see his father's body one last time. And he goes to the area of the hospital where they took the body, and he happens to, he doesn't quite get to where the body is. He happens to overhear a conversation, and he does notice that his father's body is being substituted with another body. Oh, Turns out that the other body is a hitchhiker, a drifter who has been murdered and replaces his father's body. And the hitchhiker's body is taken to the crematorium immediately. And his father's body is spirited off to who knows where. But in any case, it turns out that his father had worked for a super secret laboratory that was in this town. And the son, the guy who can't go out in the daylight, decides to start investigating what the hell is going on. And he has to do this all in pretty much one night. And he skips from adventure to adventure in the dark and stuff like that. And it turns out that the uh, secret laboratory works with monkeys who apparently have been um, bioengineered to be very highly intelligent monkeys. And they, um, well, not only are they highly intelligent, but to frighten Quite frankly, they're a bunch of evil little fuckers, too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> they are downright murderous. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> in fact, it comes down to the point where the main character goes out to a beach house that is um, occupied by his childhood friend who is, he has hung around with in the dark um, for many years. When he runs to town after night, he had a friend who hung around with them and they both come under attack there by monkeys and they have to use shotguns and such to defend themselves against monkeys and but in any case it seems that whatever um, genetic or bioengineering has been done to the monkeys was being done to humans too and that probably had something to do with his father's death of cancer and the fact that his mother had died two years before in an automobile accident. I think the point was to shut her up. Right. And it's right on the verge of this um, super secret bursting out on humanity and it's going to change humanity forever. And, well... I can't say that the main character, the hero of the story, stops it. But um, at the end, well, 
I'll let you read it for yourself to tell the end. But like I said, it's it's a bestseller. If uh, none of you have read it, then I'm sure many, many people have read it because, you know, it's Dean R. Kuhn's book. Oh, so, sure, yeah. yeah. That's my book for this I, time. Uh, I, because I didn't have time to pick out another. <laughs> I have, uh, haven't read much Dean Kuhn's, but he, uh, I only read one book of his called Watchers because it's one of Lissy's favorite books and it has an intelligent dog. So he's, he's used this theme before. Uh, this dog was amplified, had amplified intelligence, and it was a it was a pretty good book. And um, so this book might be interesting. I'd be curious to see what happens at the end because Kuntz, we, Lissy read his book, um, his nonfiction book about his dog that he got. I can't remember. Oh man! Um, and he talks in there about what he thinks about the future. He's actually pretty optimistic it sounds like hmm. um so anyway i gotta go in here and i will try not to be too long because it's getting late and but i read a bestseller too but it's it is science fiction even though wikipedia calls it a techno thriller it's called beyond the ice limit by douglas preston and lincoln child oh yeah and we liked it we had a lot of fun with it it's not high literature talking about mystery science theater and all you can think of it as a B, the equivalent of a literary equivalent of a B movie, if you like. Uh, we had a lot of fun with it. Um, it's a sequel to The Ice Limit, but you don't have to have read The Ice Limit to enjoy it because you'll get the backstory. You'll get enough of it to go on with. Um, it's about this meteorite that lands in uh, Chile, and The Ice Limit is about them trying to move it because this really rich guy wants it for his collection. But it goes down in the Pacific, down near Antarctica, um, in between south of Chile, between Chile and Antarctica. And it turns out in Beyond the Ice Limit that this meteorite was not completely dead. It actually killed some people that touched it in the ice limit. But salt water seems to be its native habitat, and it grows. It grows. Um, it has a... Uh, it has oh. tentacles that go underground and create new seeds like, you know, meteors to inhabit other planets. So they think it might doom because this meteor was 25,000 tons when they tried to move it. And these guys do their homework quite a bit. I mean, um, Preston and Child are professionals. They're not, they don't slap these things together. You can, if you read any of them, um, you know that they, they do a little bit of homework. They make up some stuff, but these oh. books are really well. And so they've got to figure out what to do about it. So in the sequel to The Ice Limit, they go down to Antarctica again to check it out and find that it has grown, and it's taking in seawater and life. And they have these submersibles, and one of them gets too close and gets captured, and it gets pulverized by this tentacle with a mouth at the end of it oh, oh apparently my. this creature what? using um it's it's a parasite and it has brain it has a brain apparently from the world that it came from but now it has a human brain that it's drawing data from and so they they get a sample of it they get a sample of it and bring it aboard a, a tent one of the tentacles that's sticking out from it and 
then they find out that a part of the sample they brought aboard is missing after they've dissected it and analyzed it, and it looks kind of like sophisticated machinery, not necessarily life. But it turns out that a, part, a piece of the sample is missing, and it gets into people's heads in little. They, they've got these little worms. Oh, oh gross! Oh. And it's causing them. It doesn't give orders. It doesn't give orders specifically. It just makes people. It's like kind of like what I was talking about when I did the, the genius oh. plague. Um, it tries to sabotage, you know, the mission because. They want to set up explosives around it to kind of map, you know, how how far advanced it's gotten underground, so they can figure out where to put the nuke. They brought a nuke to try to, you know, to destroy it, and uh, so it's it's and you know, of course, discipline starts to break down on the ship because they don't know who's infected. Uh, somebody sabotaged the cat scanner because the cat scanner can tell who's who's infected. And so there's a mutiny, and and then they run a simulation on this quantum computer that they've got that says the nuke won't work. So I'm not going to spoil it, um, but it was just a lot of fun. It's definitely science fiction because this thing comes from another planet. I don't know of any techno thriller that talks about you know creatures from other planets. Um, at least it wouldn't be legitimate. I don't think. I mean, it's real science fiction. So it's beyond the ice limit. We had a good time with it. I really liked the ending, actually. Um, the ending of the ice limit was pretty dark, and they wrote a note at the end. They weren't ent actually intending to write a sequel, but they got so many letters wanting to find out what happened to the meteorite, <laughs> you know, that landed in the ocean, and you know, all those people got killed at the end of the ice limit because the ship went down, you know, with 108 people on it. And because this is 25,000 tons, I mean, they had to figure out how to move it, how to keep it stable on the ship. And they're in a storm and it certainly starts to wobble. And when something that big starts to wobble, things just start mm -hmm. to crack, you know, and it just right. went down and the ship went with it. Um, anyway, it's fun. It's not serious literature. It's entertainment. But it's but these guys are professionals. They know how to keep the suspense going. The plot moves. The characters aren't that great. Gideon Crew is not a great character. This is the fourth book he's in, and he's kind of a lackluster character. We we like Pendergast. You know, Cindy and I, are, or Lissy and I, are fans of Pendergast. That's not science fiction necessarily, though. Some of it's kind of on the border of like fantasy or supernatural. But um, anyway. Uh, the characters aren't that great, but the plot is fun, and so if you're interested in something that's, you know, entertaining but not real deep and, you know, that will keep you in suspense, then try that. I second that. I read that, too, and I thought Did you? It, was, it was real enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, like the those narrator, authors. I've never heard of him, and I can't, darn it, I looked it up before the meeting, and it's gone again. Uh, he's a really good narrator. Colin. It wasn't Scott Brick, was it? No, it wasn't. It was David... Collins or something like that? Hold on just a second. I just added it to my wish list, I can tell you. I can't remember, but he was good. He was good. I like Eli Glenn. He's the, the guy that heads the engineering company that tried to move the meteor. He's really, you know, intelligent, and but he, you know, he's uh, he's a good character, but, you know, the Gideon crew is not, not a great character. The narrator is David Collins. David Collins, right. He's good. I never heard of him before, but he's really good. I uh, like Rene Aubergenois. Uh, he does the most. He's doing all the Pendergast books lately. But um, 
anyway, David Collins is a good narrator, and Bookshare has a publisher quality copy if you want to read that. So that's my book for this month, Beyond the Ice Limit by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, and it is science fiction. So it's, I guess, uh, does anyone else have a, are we done? I'm I'm just curious what everybody uses for reading. Do you use the stream? Are you reading Braille? I read Braille from Bookshare. I read on my, we use a digital talking book player. Lissy and I, when we read together, I use a book sense when I read by myself. Uh, it's nine over nine years old, but it's still working, and I'm using it. Um, I use a book sense. We use a digital talking book. I have a pack. I have, we have Braille displays here, so we use we read Braille. Um, we read Braille from Bookshare or even from, you know, Bard. We get Braille from Bard. So we have, you know, multiple methods to read. Um, so um, I do. I do Android. Um, mm -hmm. the, Bard, the Bard app on the Android. I do um, the Amazon Echo for all my Audible books or, the, or my phone. Uh, but I also do use Victor Stream, too. Mm -hmm. The second gen, the second generation one. Yeah, I use the Victor Stream second generation also, okay. almost exclusively. Well, is, that, is our new person here? Is our new person here, Liz? Lindsay. Yeah. Yes, Lindsay, it is. is it? Well, Liz, Lindsay. Liz uh, Lindsay, uh, yeah. Maybe I heard. Do I? Do I, I know think, you, Liz Lindsay? No, I think I heard. You, I, I, I seem to remember that she was being called Liz. Maybe it was Lindsay. Liz yeah. Lindsay, it says. You on the, um, uh, well, I downloaded the podcast of the fantasy discussion. Oh, yeah. I and I, I didn't heard you know the difference between that. Asking what is the difference between fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> right. Oh, right. that was you? Okay. I that was me. <laughs> Roger, Roger's done this before. Yeah. He, he has uh, given this presentation before. I, okay. was list I was listening on my digital talking book player, and I was just dying to break in and tell you the difference. Yes, he <laughs> likes that topic. This is one of my pet peeves. <laughs> Uh -huh. So may I explain the difference? Sometimes they, yeah, sometimes and everybody they does it. Everybody puts lines. them together. Every, every okay, but, Robert, you know, exactly. They go science fiction and fantasy. And I'm much more of a science fiction, but I'm more of a historical fiction. Um, so sometimes you get a little bit of crossover there, but I'm usually right into the science fiction kind of stuff as opposed to fantasy. There is crossover, but it bugs me when they mix science fiction and fantasy together. Yeah, it irritates yeah. me. Right. Oh, well, sometimes and, and, that happens, you know. Just does. Yeah. Listen, guys, I gotta go. Okay. Well, we will close up. Uh, our next meeting is on March fourteenth. In fact, since this is uh, twenty nineteen, February has twenty eight days. So right. we will be back on March fourteenth, two thousand nineteen. And I hope to see all of you here, all of you here, and we will talk. We, it's been a lot of fun. We will have a lot more books uh, next month. I hope more new people will come. I was happy to have unexpected new people this time. It's always good to have them. 